This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, how the people who need the health care the most have the least access to the knowledge that will help them have the care and lifestyle to be healthy and well and what can be done about it. Health claims on alcoholic drinks and the stigma of being on an opiate treatment program. He actually said that I'd never understand what pain and trauma was all about because I hadn't experienced it. I said that I'd beg to differ and that I was actually on the program. And that night, I got a phone call from one of the parents saying, they never want you to come back again, ever. And an issue that has concerned many parents of adolescents, the risk of heart inflammation, myocarditis, after being given an mRNA vaccine, in other words, Pfizer or Moderna. A group at Monash Children's Hospital in Melbourne has documented their experience in the second half of last year, and the news is good. The lead author was paediatric cardiologist Dr Suraj Varma. Welcome to the Health Report, Suraj. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Norman. Well, the first thing to say is that you weren't overrun with kids with myocarditis. The numbers were fortunately very low, uh, and the current numbers recorded are if 100,000 people get the vaccine, maybe 10 would get the myocarditis. And I think you documented 33. What symptoms do they have? The children who presented to us um, all presented within... um, a few days of the vaccine with chest pain, and then we uh, admitted them on the basis of elevation of an enzyme called troponin, which is um, a marker of myocardial damage or involvement. So all the kids who presented were with chest pain with some enzyme elevation. And they had other things as well, like less frequently, fever, shortness of breath, headache, muscle pains, and that sort of thing. But the main thing was they all had chest pain. That is correct which is comforting for parents that they know what the symptom is that they look like. And um, and what ages were they? The group that we were publishing were between the age of 12 and 18 years. Um, and this is from, the data was from June to December of last year. But most of them, they, they kind of bundled around about 15 years old. That, that was kind of the commonest age group. That is correct. The around 15, that is correct. And most were Pfizer, but they were mostly having Pfizer anyway. Uh, initially, if you remember, Norman, we only had Pfizer that is available. So as expected, we had more people um, presenting after Pfizer just because of that uh, initial availability, followed by Moderna. Apart from the troponin, which shows heart muscle damage, how do you diagnose myocarditis? Myocarditis can be a tricky and challenging diagnosis. Uh, what we have used in our diagno- diagnostic criteria are Findings on ECG, echocardiogram, which is the ultrasound of the heart, and cardiac MRI. So you put all those together and you come up with the the diagnosis. So how well or unwell were they? How long did they stay in hospital? The average time frame for their hospital stay was about two to three days. Uh, They were, most of them um, had immediate pain relief with neurofen or high-dose ibuprofen and we were able to discharge most of them, as I said, within two to three days. So they were not unwell. None of them needed ICU stay. None of them needed any um, higher medications like inotropic support. And at the last follow-up, all of them are doing well without any signif- without any symptoms or problems at this time. And they're back to playing school sport, if that's what they did? That is correct. 
So there's no after effects. And I think one of the things that parents are worried about is, I mean, at the moment, third doses aren't available for this age group. Uh, they will be eventually. At the moment, it's for immunocompromised kids who, um, who, are, who have comorbidities or dis- disability. But for kids who are otherwise healthy, do we know from international studies, and I, and I should preface this by saying that they got it, most of them got it after the second dose of Pfizer or Moderna. Hmm. Interestingly, uh, the number of, if you look at international studies, uh, the number of people who got it after the booster dose is actually very, very low. And since, you know, collecting this data, when we look back at um, how many people are presented after booster, the numbers are very low. And the other reassuring thing, Norman, is when I look back over the last few months, our numbers have clearly come down. Uh, The number of young people presenting with myocarditis have definitely decreased when I look back at the data over the last few months, which has not been published. And what about 5 to 12-year-olds? I'm yet to see a single child in that age group, um, you know, present to our hospital with myocarditis after the vaccine. When I look at the uh, Australian data, I think there were four likely or suspected myocarditis in that age group. So numbers are very, very low. Looking at the overseas data, um, uh, the numbers are reassuringly low and in some cases very close to the background rate of myocarditis. And how does that compare to myocarditis in kids with... So, so in other words, the younger you are, the safer it is. How does it compare to myocarditis after you've had COVID in children? The COVID-related myocarditis data is a bit more difficult to assess because uh, suppose you have troponin elevation with COVID, many infections can cause troponin elevation. So they don't get the full kind of workup that we have given for children who are presented with no other illnesses as well as, um, so so the data is not as robust when you look at myocarditis after COVID. But if you look at the broad data, um, the, the number of children needing ICU stay, people who had multi-system inflammatory syndrome, things like stroke, death, etc. around the world, um, the numbers are, you know, um, uh, the, the difference is very, very vast. So you had a larger number of people in needing ICU stay and support after COVID okay. infection as opposed to the myocarditis after the vaccine. So get the vaccine. Suraj, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr. Suraj Varma is a paediatric cardiologist at Monash Children's Hospital. And this is RN's Health Report. So, Norman, I know as a Scot, you're contractually obliged to be a whiskey drinker. I'm not sure if you're a beer drinker too. Have you ever been swayed by claims of low-carb beers or maybe organic wines? No, not low-carb beer, but maybe organic wine, thinking it might save me from a migraine, but never very <laughs> sure about that. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I've definitely noticed more of these products on the shelves, alcoholic drinks, maybe kind of trying to convince you that maybe they're not too bad for you. Uh, but a new study has actually looked into these health claims that are on drinks to see if there's any substance to them at all. I think you might be able to guess what the answer is, but to talk us through the details is the lead author of the study, Ashley Hayes. Welcome, uh, Haynes, sorry. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, Tegan. Thanks. So what did you actually look at with this study and what did you find? So we found that health, these types of health-oriented marketing features on alcohol products are really prevalent on the Australian market, um, as unsurprisingly, as you alluded to. Um, so we carried out an online study of beers, ciders, ready-to-drink premix, spirit drinks and also selected wines. And we found that health-oriented marketing features were most common on ciders, 
So over nine in 10 uh, 10 ciders actually displayed this type of marketing. That was followed by pre-mixed drinks and beers, so around one in two um, in each of these categories. And this type of marketing was least common on wines, but it still appeared in one in five of those products. And so some of what you're looking at is like pictures of fruit, this idea that it's a natural product Mm. and some of them are quite explicit, like it's a low carb or it's a low sugar product. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So one of some of the most common ones that we found were actually sort of textual claims. So um, you know, some, something written in words on the on the front of the pack, um, but claims about a product being natural, or as you as you said, sort of containing fruit. Um, and some some of the other common claims were, um, yeah, those those about sugar. So the nutrition content as well. So saying low or no no sugar or no added sugar. But there's actually no, um, in the study that you're looking at, most of the products were still classified as full strength. It wasn't that they were necessarily a healthier option. But there's sort of no way for a consumer to to check that out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so we found that you know, even though they were they were slightly lower in alcohol content, those those products that did display this sort of health health oriented marketing, that difference was was really marginal, and it's it's really unlikely to be of any health benefit, given that, as you said, most of those products were still classified as full strength alcohol on average. And you know, something else we found it was that nutrition information was available online for just over ten percent of all of the products we surveyed. So consumers really don't have access to this this additional information that can help them make an informed choice between products. So this is sort of coming at a time where lobby groups are, are lobbying for better uh, nutritional information on alcoholic beverages, food standards. Australia New Zealand is currently looking at this. What should be, I mean, in your opinion, what what should be on alcoholic drinks? Everything else we put in our mouths that I can think of would have a nutritional label on it. It sort of seems to be a strange category that it's not. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so one change that's being considered is is putting sort of mandatory energy labelling. Um, so at present, alcohol products certainly don't have to put energy content on the label. Um, you know, the, the exception to this is products that make those promotional claims about nutrition content. But, you know, the bottom line is that um, this information can be made selectively available. So consumers just don't have access to that information. Um, so, yeah, one option that's being considered is making that energy content information a standardised piece of information across all alcohol products. Is that enough uh, energy? I mean, it's it's a source of energy in your diet that perhaps we don't really think about as much as maybe we should, but that's not really the primary reason why alcohol isn't good for you. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think one one sort of issue with these health-oriented claims is that, you know, we think that they're they're creating a health halo and they're actually detracting from those those other the, the sort of serious health harms associated with alcohol. Um, so so another another option that is currently being considered is um, whether specific nutrition content claims, so about low sugar and low carbohydrate content should be removed um, because because these are sort of a you know a particular concern and food ministers are concerned that they're being used to promote alcohol as a healthier choice. Right. So it's going in both directions. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tegan. Dr. Ashley Haynes is David Hill Research Fellow at the Cancer Council Victoria's Centre for Behavioural Research in Cancer. 
Now, for people with heroin addiction, treatment programs can be life-saving, but it doesn't mean a life without stigma. I've been speaking to Shay, who says that despite raising a family and working as a disability carer, she still feels like she can't be honest with people about the fact she's on methadone. We decided to go on methadone because it was much more stabilising for us. We did want to be using, we just couldn't afford to use all the time. Methadone is great. It's fantastic. It has been a great leveller for me, but it's different as well. So I'm dosed by a doctor every three months. We see the doctor and I go to a chemist to pick up my methadone and I have a certain amount of takeaways. So I dose myself each day, have my dose each morning. As a worker, you need that flexibility. At least on methadone, I can, at first, maybe when it's compounding in your system for the first week or so, until you're stabilised, you know, you might be a bit out of it. But after that, it's just keeping you regulated, really, like on a constant level. Can you talk about the stigma that you've experienced? Particularly when my children were young, and I kept it secret for quite some time until I thought that I could trust a person that I'd become quite close to living in the region for eight or nine years. And when I told them, within a week or so, I could just tell that that person had divulged it to others in the community. And the whole attitude of people towards me was incredibly different to the point where my kids wouldn't be invited to people's places and things like that, or people sort of behaved very differently. And also you find that in some chemists, they will, no matter how long you've been there, whether you've been there for 15, 20 years even, like you never anticipate you're going to be on methadone for that long, but it ends up just creeping up on you. And I didn't think I'd be someone who might be on it for the rest of my life, but I've come to the conclusion that maybe I will be, but it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't make any difference because I'm functioning, I work, I try and support as many people as I can and I'm really passionate about helping people so I'm actually a support worker so I work with disabled people and that was another place where I was really badly discriminated against but I couldn't tell everyone properly what had happened. You know it's so sad that I can't be truthful about who I am and my name because like if people knew then maybe they'd change their philosophy about their picture of or the way they see people who are junkies in inverted commas. Trying to be open to people and if they are drug users, they still have so much to offer. Everyone, no matter who you are, you all have something to offer. And please, if someone is taking drugs and wants to tell their truth to you, some way together, there has to be a way to move through it, to make it more acceptable, to gently ease and be more open to people who are on drugs. We have so much to offer society. So what do we do about stigma and addiction and what's best practice in Australia when it comes to helping people with opiate addiction? Here's Michael Farrell, Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. Welcome, Michael. Hello. What sits behind stigma? Well, there's a, when we look at... Uh, drug dependence and injecting drug use. It's one of the most stigmatised conditions of all health conditions. And one of the things behind it is a sort of a moral judgment on people rather than viewing this as an illness that's understandable. Um, a lot of, and a lot of uh, false beliefs 
built around it. And one of the approaches to this, of course, is to get people to understand uh, the conditions better, understand the treatments, and understand uh, particularly the benefits of treatment. And there's a lot of work to be done to reduce the stigma around this condition. So you're involved in the Stigma Indicators Monitoring Project. What does that look look at? Well, I'm very peripherally involved. That is led by Professor Carla Tlor in the um, (coughs) Centre for Social Research. And the real aim of that is looking at uh, a a range of conditions uh, that are stigmatised and uh, trying to develop approaches to reduce stigma. What... You've talked about this before as being looking at it as a health problem rather than a moral problem. What can we actually do to shift the needle on that as, as a society? Well, I think it's uh, like those programs, uh, you know, questions you could ask, getting people to have a better understanding of the conditions, getting people to understand, for instance, the effectiveness of treatment for opiate dependence, that um, it is a life-saving treatment, reduces um, mortality very significantly, improves well-being and works very well. And it's to to get people to know that uh, there are good uh, answers available and to understand it's important to make uh, that sort of treatment available to people and to be uh, humanitarian and sympathetic around the availability of it. We heard Shay talking before about methadone, which has been in use for quite a while, but there are other um, treatment options available. What does What's the best practice look like in Australia at the moment? Well, the best practice is... Uh, maintenance treatment, whether it be with methadone, uh, oral buprenorphine, or possibly now we have a new treatment, which is uh, long-acting depot buprenorphine, which you can take for a week or a month. And any of those treatments, um, they're they're broadly comparable. There's some sort of minor variations between them, but they're they're (laughs) the treatments that have a good, strong evidence base behind them. The interesting thing about the depot stuff is that it frees up people from some of the exposure so they don't have to go to the chemist or they they're it's more invisible and we think that actually has had an impact it it, it makes it easier for people not to for them to be very discreet about their treatment right so it might not erase the stigma but it it reduces their exposure to it i suppose Yes, it, it doesn't, I mean, once, as Shay described there, it wasn't attending the chemist, it was actually telling somebody confidentially about her treatment that resulted in her experience uh, of increased uh, social exclusion, and that's not an uncommon experience. So it's 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 not just about the treatment, it's about the condition and people making judgment. Uh, once they know you've got this condition, they make an association that you'll be involved in crime and you'll be involved in a, a lot of other things when that may not necessarily be the case. So you mentioned a few different uh, substances there before. We've already talked about methadone. Switzerland has a heroin program. Is that something yes. we should consider? 
Well, the 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 evidence on it shows that um, it, it it works for people. Particularly, some of the studies done show that it works for people who are refractory to the more conventional treatments. It is expensive, and um, it would be possible to provide it for some people. Um, and it's something in terms of some people, uh, some form of injectable treatment. Uh, should be put into consideration uh, in Australia. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It really is also about perspective, isn't it? If, if the perspective is that drugs are inherently bad, then that's a really tough sell. If the perspective is that people should be given safe, uh, safe ability to live healthily, perhaps it, it shifts that a bit. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the, the destigmatization approach is to give people the facts for them to understand, for instance, uh, the significant reduction in mortality, the fact that uh, we have, in the last 30 to 40 years, there's very low rates of HIV in Australia because of these approaches to people who inject drugs, and to understand that there's a big success story around how... Um, opiate dependence has been managed in Australia. So really uh, a shifting and an, an updating of people's understanding. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Professor Michael Farrell is the Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. And a few years ago, Teague and I made a feature in Bern in Switzerland of their heroin clinic there. And uh, we were trying to dig that out maybe and put it, uh, a link to that on our website. One of the features of the waves and surges of the pandemic in Victoria, which kept the city under lockdown for so long, was that the virus swept through parts of Greater Melbourne with large concentrations of social or government housing, often in high-rise buildings and among culturally diverse migrant communities where English wasn't the first language. Sydney had similar issues in its western and southwestern suburbs. The impact on these communities was enormous. But what the focus on the pandemic hid was, hid was that people in social housing are already under considerable chronic stress. They have maybe food insecurity, have a wide range of health needs and disparities when compared to the better off parts of our cities. This means more avoidable illness, premature deaths, and there's evidence that if people understood more about their health and what to ask for, this disparity could be reduced. Tomorrow, a major report is being released on the actions which could address health literacy in Victorian social housing. Professor Richard Osborne at Swinburne University of Technology is one of the investigators. Welcome back to The Health Report after a long gap, Richard. Thank you. It's terrific to be back. Just how wide are the health inequities that you found compared to the rest of Australia? Well, it's uh, it's tremendously um, difficult for people in these settings with so many more health conditions. And people are really struggling with uh, mental health and physical health and an extraordinary wide range of worries, including, indeed, as you mentioned, worrying about getting enough food and getting enough medicine and uh, just having access to information that they can trust. So it's really very, very broad. And just the access and just the the services that people don't know that they could get or and they should be getting too. And and there are life we talk about life expectancy gap between non-Indigenous Australian and First Nations peoples. Uh, presumably there are life expectancy gaps as well in these areas. 
Yes, very much. I mean, if you're carrying uh, the proportion of people with uh, one, two or three or more chronic conditions living in social housing, it's much, much higher than a general population. And so carrying those, that sort of burden is very difficult. But of course, many of these people also have depression. That's another reason for people to be um, have a, a, a shorter life expectancy. But actually just getting good advice from their GP or just getting good services from community health, that's a huge de uh, determinant of people's ability to look after themselves and manage their health problems. So where... I mean, where does health literacy fit this in? Fit in? Because what you're talking about here is not just understanding health, how your body works. It's also understanding the system and how to navigate through it. Absolutely. I mean, for many people living in these settings, they can read okay, or they've got someone who can read for them. So it's not and English language really literacy per se. Not always, but that is certainly part of it. Many people will be, you know, really relying on their family and other people. But if you're very isolated, then you can't get that sort of language support from family or other people. But a lot of people don't need more written information. And that's a real problem with government in many settings is just ramming more verbal and written information to people. It's actually knowing your rights and actually having someone who can support you. But also digital health literacy is a critical thing in a setting, we believe. We saw, we found very clearly. In other words, having access to the internet, having access to devices, and of course, there's a digital divide, which you describe in this report. The digital divide is shocking, really, really shocking. So people may have a device, but it may not work so well, and they can easily run out of data so they can't attend an appointment with their, their doctor or actually even knowing to, how to set up an appointment. There's so many things against people. And it's not just perhaps older people, which is perhaps more of the assumptions, but younger people having resources. But also when you're dealing with so many complexities and many people have had a history of trauma. So people are using so much energy often every day just to keep their general stuff together let alone try to work out how to use the internet. And ironically, they end up going to McDonald's to get access to Wi-Fi. Well, yes, that does indeed happen. So if we live in what we would like to be a just society like Australia, when we know there's Australians having to go to a fast food outlet and be outside that for a, a consultation with the health professional... That's not on. That's not what we want. And it's not necessary either. We can really support community health services and they do amazing stuff already. So what, so, what are the, so, so what are the high-profile solutions? The high-profile solutions really mean that we have to have um, better digital connection. That's critical. That's, and it's really obvious. So part of the life support for people is the relationship they have with the community health services and the GP. And they need that information because they find it so hard to trust in the other information coming out. So it's connected to good information and reliable people around them. And so if we're going to build... Go ahead. Go on. Well, if we're going to build new, the new services like this or new public housing, the information about how people really do understand and use information... That needs to be included. So we need social engineers and public health specialists as well as ordinary architects and other sorts of engineers to build these sort of services going forward in the future. And of course, it sounds old-fashioned to say it, the services need to talk to each other and coordinate. 
Yeah, that's the one of the biggest things. So a lot of people you know, with a history of trauma and dealing with so many stresses each day just to keep their stuff together. The services need to be wraparound, gentle, go in and out. People coming in and out of these services as they have the energy and the focus and the abilities. So there's gentle trust, trust building and wraparound service to really help people bring them along and get them engaged in services. And that trust is so important. So you're launching the report tomorrow and there's a seminar if people in Victoria want to register for it. Yes, yes. Tomorrow morning at 9.30 it'll be happening. And um, if people want to register, they can connecthealth.org.au. They can connect and be part of it, connecthealth.org.au. And it's online, so you can't be part of the digital divide. Richard, thank you. (laughs) Terrific. Thank you. Bye. Richard Osborne is Professor of Health Sciences at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. This has been The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. And we hope you'll join us next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.